If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. It's the march to Donald Trump's 100th day in office, and I'm Kristen Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations all around America that together make McClatchy. Every week, we call the senior correspondents who live and work in political battleground states and ask them to open their notebooks and to tell us about how voters are reacting to Trump, the GOP Congress, and the actions coming out of this Capitol that affect your lives. On the hook this week are Patty Mazay of the Miami Herald and Colin Campbell of the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. Patty Mazay, it's been so long. How you doing? I missed you. I'm great. How are you? Oh, I missed you too. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about President Donald Trump's upcoming tax reform proposal. And we're going to hear from a conservative GOP strategist on where the Freedom Caucus might be on this. The big question is, will they compromise? I want to talk about sanctuary cities and counties and states and the pressure that is coming from Washington to start complying with some federal immigration policies or lose your money. And we will end with our favorite segment, the lightning round, where we talk about who's making moves ahead of the 2018 and 2020 elections. Before we start, let me just say thank you for all the great feedback we're getting. Please keep sending your questions and your ideas and tell us what's happening in your state. Email us at btb at That's btb as in beyond the bubble. Let's get started. January 20th. The day the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Katie Glick, welcome back. It is really, really nice to see you again. It feels like it's been forever. I'm so excited to be back. Tell me all about Donald Bryson. Who is this man? So Donald Bryson is the North Carolina State Director for Americans for Prosperity, which is a very influential conservative group backed by, of course, the the prominent conservative Koch brothers. And Americans for Prosperity is often involved in sort of the big fights uh, in Congress, whether it's health care or now looking ahead to tax reform. They're very supportive of what they call pro-growth tax reform, but they've also been loudly opposed to something called the border adjustment tax. What is the border adjustment tax? The border adjustment tax would hit imported goods with a tax, and uh, this is something that's been supported by some members of House leadership, but a lot of conservative outside groups and many rank-and-file members of Congress are very opposed to it. How has Americans for Prosperity and the North Carolina chapter, if we know, felt about Donald Trump's first 100 days in office? On the whole, what a lot of conservative groups will tell you, including uh, Americans for Prosperity, is that, you know, they're very excited to have a president who uh, supports, you know, rolling back certain regulations. They feel like on the whole, he's taken a better approach to promoting the business community, promoting uh, growth in the economic sector. But at the same time, there's also been some pretty clear areas of division. So, for example, during the biggest legislative fight that we've had so far, the last health care debate, Americans for Prosperity was actually opposed to the legislation that was supported by President Trump, that was supported by House leadership, because they felt that that effort to repeal Obamacare didn't go far enough. All right, let's call Mr. Bryson. Hello? 
Donald, thanks so much again for joining us here. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be on. I'm glad she has a big footprint in North Carolina. I wonder what the biggest thing is you'll be watching for as President Trump unveils his tax plan later this week. Well, simplification, I think, is the number one thing we want to be looking for. You know, you can't really have tax reform unless you try to simplify the tax code. People uh, and economists on the left and the right of American politics think that our tax code is you know, antiquated and too complicated. Um, and, uh, you know, Representative George Holding had a good line in an op-ed that he pinned his district down here in North Carolina not too long ago where he said he hopes that we get to a point one day where people can file their taxes on a postcard. And uh, I don't think we're going to get there with this, but uh, President Trump, who ran as candidate Trump, did talk a lot about simplifying the tax code and reducing all of the different tiers that we have in the tax system. Here in D.C., we talk about simplifying the tax code a lot. And for years, in fact, decades, actually, we've been talking about how to simplify the individual tax code as well as the business tax code. So when you talk about simplification, are you talking about both individual and business or one or the other? I think it's it's both. First off, in the personal income tax code, we have seven different tiers you know, and obviously the tiers increased based on how much you have in income. Your candidate Trump ran talking about reducing that from seven tiers down to three tiers, which I think is a step in the right direction. If we can create a, a more fair tax code that's a lot simpler, you know, people won't have quite so much anxiety about filing their taxes. But uh, also on the business side, you know, people on the left always talk about these corporate tax giveaways and how corporations really have the system slanted in their favor. And they, they're absolutely right. There are a lot of corporations and industries that have these special tax credits and tax deductions that we just need to get away with. The one that we hear a lot about uh, has to do with uh, fuels. You know, there's the wind production tax credit, solar energy tax credits, there's fossil fuel tax credits for oil and coal. All of those need to go away. And those are things that really mess up the tax code, not to mention that the corporate tax code is also tiered. Americans for Prosperity nationally, as well as other conservative groups, have been raising some concerns about the border adjustment tax. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about why that's so controversial and whether your activists are are engaging on this issue yet? Well, our activists have been engaging on this issue for a couple of months. We've done literally hundreds of thousands of phone calls all across the country. A border adjusted tax is quite simply a 20% tax or tariff on all imported goods. Now, there are people, shockingly, there are people in Congress Uh, along with just people on the street, think that this has to do with paying for President Trump's border wall. And that's not what this is at all. This is a brand new tax on all imported goods, not just from Mexico. And so um, coffee doesn't grow that well in the United States anywhere. And so that's a 20% tax on top of your coffee and your bananas and a lot of your tomatoes. And, and, you know, uh, the list just goes on and on and on. What we're hearing from House Republicans is they are interested in this because it will help, quote, pay for a reduction in the income tax rate. But that's not tax reform. That's treating the tax code like a pressure valve. We're going to let off some pressure over here on the corporate tax rate and increase pressure over here on consumers. That's just moving taxes around who pays the taxes. That's not actually providing tax relief to anyone. So we're, we're opposed to this border-adjusted tax. And do you see that emerging as perhaps the biggest sticking point in the upcoming tax debate? I don't know that it will necessarily be the biggest sticking point because I think, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi will probably be opposed to, you know, reducing the rates entirely. But at least on the conservative side, yeah, I I do think that that will be a major sticking point. There's a lot to applaud in what the House Republicans have talked about so far, elimination of the death tax, elimination of the alternative minimum tax, things like that. But doing true tax reform does not and should not include creating a brand new tax entirely. And this is not an issue where you see conservatives willing to sort of give some ground. You expect maybe the other side to, to come a little bit more your way if they want to get tax reform done? That's right. And, and, you know, we're hearing from a lot of conservatives in the House and, quite frankly, in the Senate as well. They're opposed to it. And what we're hearing 
is that there aren't enough votes in the Senate to pass a border adjusted tax. Where are you willing to move? Clearly, this border tax, it is something that is so important to you that you're really not willing to move on that. And you're hoping that other Republicans can come toward the conservative position on this. But what are the areas where you see both sides being able to come together that would involve a little bit of movement on the conservative side as well? Sure. I I think these sort of things, when you're reducing and getting rid of tax credits and deductions along with reducing the rate, that all is going to be negotiated out. You know, the, the dream scenario for a true conservative tax reform would be to get rid of all the deductions and credits and lower the rate as much as possible. But, you know, I, I think that um, the House leadership and Senate leadership has expressed some interest in getting rid of the deductions and lowering the rate that way. It looks right now, you know, they're talking about reducing the corporate rate down to about 20%. That may come out a little bit higher. That, that all depends on uh, if we can get rid of you know, the credits and deductions and how many of those we can get rid of. Specific to North Carolina voters, when you talk about tax reform, what's the one or two things that they're willing to let go of in an effort to achieve simplification of the code? Well, you know, part of being a grassroots organization is you're able to talk to people literally where they live. And uh, mostly we just hear exasperation about how complicated it is. People just want to say, hey, you know, I made this much money this year and I want to pay this percentage of it. But again, we've added so many deductions and credits, and it becomes very complicated for a lot of people, particularly small business owners as well. And so I think people would actually be willing to get rid of credits and deductions as long as they're guaranteed a lower rate. The problem is that a lot of people on the left want to get rid of credits and deductions and then keep rates the same or even increase the rates. So yes, the tax code is in fact simplified, but the burden is actually larger. It's an interesting thing because... People really get used to some of these deductions and credits that they have enjoyed year after year after year. And I'm thinking very specifically about the mortgage interest deduction, which is one of the most popular pieces of our current tax code. And when you start telling people that they might lose that mortgage interest deduction, support for tax reform really begins to fall off. That's right. Everybody wants everybody else's deductions and credits to go away except for their own. You know, I think the, the lesson in the long run, and, and there are a lot of states, including North Carolina, who are, you know, laboratories of democracy where tax reform has worked very, very well. North Carolina went from a three-tiered tax system and the personal rate down to a flat tax rate. And our economy is one of the fastest growing economies in the country right now. We're really booming. And so uh, we're hoping that the North Carolina delegation will take a look at that. And, you know, Senator Tom Phillips was House Speaker when we first started passing tax reform down here. And it would be interesting to see what his views are on tax reform. Donald, thank you so much for all of this. Anything else uh, you, you think we should be keeping an eye on as you get ready for you know the tax reform debate as it may unfold over the next couple of weeks? Well, everybody just put their helmets on and get ready for the special interest groups to fly in and defend why their tax credit reduction needs to stay in place. Uh, and that includes a lot of energy industries and insurance companies and the realtors and all that. Uh, they'll always start flying in and start uh, hiring a lot more lobbyists. So just get ready to hear from them. Good imagery. Everybody bumping heads with helmets on. Thank you so much for calling us. Thank you so much, Donald. Bye. Take care. All right. Let's bring in the rest of our crew and keep this party going. Anita Kumar, it's so nice to see you again. Thanks for having me back. It's been a while. It has been a really long time, hasn't it? Two weeks. And Colin Campbell down in Raleigh, how are you? Great. Also great to be back after a few weeks off. That was an interesting conversation. Anita, please tell us, what is the state of play on President Trump's tax reform proposal? Well, we're going to see something Wednesday, but do not expect much. As you may know, Donald Trump said the other day that he was going to put out his tax reform proposal on Wednesday, and his staff is quickly saying, but it's not going to be that much. 
And what we'll see is broad brushstrokes, guidance, um, his overall thoughts. It's not going to differ very much from what he's been saying for months. That's what Mick Mulvaney had to say on Fox this weekend. Let's listen here. I think what you're going to see on Wednesday is some specific governing principles, some guidance, also some, um, some indication of what the rates are going to be. I don't think you're going to see something, and I don't think anybody expects us to roll out uh, bill language on Wednesday. In fact, we don't want to do that. Who is advising the president on tax? What can we glean from the people in the room when he's talking about these issues? So his two biggest advisors on this are Steve Mnuchin, who's the Treasury Secretary, and Gary Cohn, who's the director of the National Economic Council. And both of these guys are from Goldman Sachs, very much have Wall Street on their minds. And what we can glean from that is corporate tax is going to be the biggest thing. Now, Donald Trump has talked about that for months and months and months. He wants to probably even half the corporate tax rate, which is a huge amount. And so you can believe that these two men are telling him that's very important. That's not dissimilar from what we just heard from Donald, is it, Katie? Exactly. And what sort of the thing that the Donald Bryson talked about in terms of where the sticking point may be here is... The Donald Bryson. Yes, the Donald Bryson. I feel like every time you say the word Donald now, it has to be the Donald. Right, or like real Donald. Maybe that should be his new Twitter handle, you know, (laughs) following the presidents. So anyway, what you know, of course, what Bryson was telling us was, you know, certainly there are some of these areas of agreement more broadly about how to do tax reform. But what he talked about, again, was sort of the sticking point here being this border adjustment tax, which is something that we already see conservatives lining up around. Anita, maybe you can speak to this, but I don't know if the White House even wants to engage on on that issue for now. It seems like we've seen some, some distancing from that. But, you know, what I can also tell you is that voters are not engaged on this issue at all. I was just in Idaho with Congressman Rayuel Labrador, a member of the House Freedom Caucus, and people there wanted to talk about health care at his town halls. They wanted to talk about Russia. No one was really bringing up tax reform organically. So this does not yet seem to be something that's really breaking through, at least at the voter level. You know, Patty, when I think about tax reform, I think of it as an issue that Americans by and large love to talk about, but that lawmakers can't get done because no one can agree on the specifics. Voters aren't really engaged in the specifics. So in Florida, when voters talk about tax reform, what are they really talking about? Well, first of all, like Katie said, it's like the few times they talk about tax reform. What they want is lower taxes, and just an easier way to file them. They don't want it to be complicated. They don't want to have to go to H&R Block and spend money to have somebody help them. I think for them, the reform is making it cheaper and easier to file taxes, and just the little details are not at all resonating or cutting through the public conscious. I mean, I know we have a local lawmaker, uh, Carlos Corbello of Miami, who sits on the House Ways and Means Committee. He's a Republican, and he's interested in, for example, giving some sort of tax incentives for people who don't just want to get a four-year liberal arts degree in college, right, so that we can match the skills of the employers who want people who can do things that are very specialized and not necessarily something you can learn in college. He wants to give an incentive for people to be able to deduct that from their taxes when they can't do that now. So that stuff is practical, and I think it's something that the voters would like if, if it would come up, but it's just not there yet at all. Yeah, it's hard for them to make the case for this because most politicians don't want to get into the minutia when they're speaking to a local crowd. Senator Richard Burr from here in North Carolina was making a rare uh, public appearance last week here at a Chamber of Commerce event.
president, and no one asked about tax reform in the Q&A session, but he kind of steered the conversation a little bit towards that. Uh, he got a question about sort of how do we improve the business climate, and he steered it around to we need corporate tax reform because if we do this, we're going to get global investment and we're going to take uh, what is currently an anemic 1% or 2% economic growth and bring that up to 3 or 4%, and that's going to help all of you here in this room who have small businesses. And that went over pretty well once he brought that up, but it you had to be simplified to that level and make that kind of promise about what the outcome is going to be from for the economy as opposed to the specific points of what's in the plan. That's really interesting. Anita, over and over again, we keep hearing about things that are relevant to the corporate code. How committed do you think the president is to overhaul of the individual tax code? I do think he is committed to that. That was one of the maybe four or so things that he talked about on the campaign trail. He talked about the corporate code individual. He also talked about just making things simpler. There's seven income brackets right now. He had proposed putting it down to three, which would do what Patty said and make things easier for people. Um, and hopefully save regular people money. And then he also talked about getting corporations to, they have money overseas, and he wants them to bring that money back. But there's disagreements on most all of those things. But, you know, just what Colin was saying, people aren't really talking about this. The reason Donald Trump is talking about it is he promised that he would do this. And he thinks that people voted for him because of that. They may not know all the minutia about it, but they may think, oh, my taxes are going to go down. And so he feels very strongly about that. The reason we're hearing about it this week, though, is because his 100 days in office will end on Saturday. And he is unveiling things every single day this week. Is it true that he surprised his staff with this? Surprised totally surprised. Now, they had talked about it. Obviously, this is one of his number one priorities. So it's not like this was a mystery. They've been talking about it for months since he came into office. But they had talked about doing this later, June at the earliest. And they still say the details will come out in June. They had talked about August. They had talked about late summer, early fall. Um, He was doing an interview with the Associated Press, and he guess wanted to make a little news there. And he said, we'll be having a big announcement on Wednesday having to do with tax reform. The process has begun long ago, but it really formally begins on Wednesday, so go through it. And I think everybody was really startled. If you talk to folks, as I did this weekend in the White House and outside the White House, they had no idea it was coming. That is why the expectations are really low. They were not ready for a proposal. Um, There's a lot of big things happening this week. They're supposed to maybe bring back health care. And, of course, the biggest thing is that the government can shut down on this weekend if they don't come up with a spending plan. So this was not on the radar. I can tell you I was just meeting with a prominent conservative leader who was telling me that the rest of Washington doesn't really care about Donald Trump. Trump's 100-day timetable. You know, they, these are really big issues, whether it's health care, whether it's tax reform, certainly, you know, keeping the government from shutting down. That is on a little bit more of a tight time frame. But, you know, for the rest of these big policy issues, they don't really want to be pushed into a corner or forced into making big decisions. And so even though we are certainly you know, seeing discussion of all sorts of big policy issues suddenly this week, don't expect to see a lot of conservatives lining up to try and give him a victory just because we're hitting that 100-day mark. No, but, you know, all these people in Washington keep talking about it. And Donald Trump keeps talking about it. It's a funny thing he does where he says, well, I'm going to do all these things in my 100 days, but I don't care about the 100 days. It's arbitrary. And no matter what, anything happens. But I think every president does this. They don't want to be judged in 100 days, but they know they will be judged. And so they have to come up with something. But let's remember- The 100th day, otherwise known as Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) White House Correspondents Dinner. The American people care about the 100-day mark, which is nothing to do with the 100 days. Conservatives- 
lawmakers, people all over the place criticized him a couple months ago when healthcare failed. Last month. Yeah, last month. This month. Oh, <laughs> gosh, is it just, God, that time flies, I right? Know. So people criticized him that he wasn't out front. He wasn't there in the beginning saying what he wanted, that he didn't uh, know about the policy specifics. So this is also his attempt to try to start the conversation. I will say they were working this weekend around the clock. This is a huge, horrible week for them. And the president just made it worse. Let's get to our next segment. It's on immigration and sanctuary cities, because on Friday, Donald Trump's Justice Department warned nine local governments accused of offering sanctuary to immigration offenders that they must prove compliance with federal policy or lose crime fighting grant money. And as Davin Coburn says, one of them has already responded by saying, come at me, bro. Come at me, bro. (laughs) Let's listen to California's (laughs) Attorney General Becerra. I don't think he said that. Whoever wants to come at us, uh, that's hostility. We'll be ready. We have been abiding by federal law for quite some time before Jeff Sessions became the attorney general. We're going to continue to abide by federal law and the U.S. Constitution. And we're hoping that uh, the federal government will also abide by the U.S. Constitution, which gives my state the right to decide how to do public safety. Anita, uh, this tough on immigration posture really helped the president win the White House. And he is certainly saying the words that indicate he remains serious about it. What specifically is justice threatening here? Sure. um, And I will say that I totally agree. Everybody I talked to this weekend, White House folks, Republicans, he is deadly serious about this. But it's not as serious as you might think. So uh, we talked about sanctuary city funding before. Congress controls funding. So a lot of that is still tied up with Congress, and we don't know what they're going to do. But what Donald Trump is talking about and his Justice Department is talking about is there are certain grants, three in particular, that are at stake here. Last year, Congress basically said that the administration could take away funding in these three grants if the uh, the localities and the states did not give information to the federal government about who was illegal in their city or state. They are not that much money, but they are super important because, you know, law enforcement is strapped all the time. It's supposed to house illegal immigrants in their cities and states. It's also just for basic law enforcement money. And so while it's not a lot, it's important. Now, Patty, the jurisdictions targeted were some of those that were cited last year for policies that get in the way of local police communicating with federal immigration authorities over legal status of prisoners. Now, Miami-Dade was listed then and was also part of the Justice Department's letter now. What gives here? Didn't Dade just commit to enforcing federal policy? Yes, it did. And so they were surprised at Miami-Dade County Hall on Friday to find out that they were still on this list. Now, they're brushing it off. They're saying this was some sort of, you know, generic list that was triggered by this Justice Department report from more than a year ago, listing places that did not comply with federal law on detention immigration requests. But having said that, you don't want to get a piece of paper in April after in January you said you were not going to be a sanctuary county anymore, still accusing you of being a sanctuary county. For Dade, this is like, you know, almost half a million dollars that would be threatened if they don't comply according to the Trump administration by June 30th. But let's remember, Patty, this isn't about who calls himself a sanctuary city. This is about giving the federal government data that they want on who is illegal in your city and state or county. Right. But they say they're giving it now. I mean, they always share the data. It's just they didn't want to keep the unauthorized immigrants in detention because the feds weren't paying for them. And now they're 
keeping them there if the feds want them, even though they're not getting reimbursed. But I think it's noteworthy to say that this issue just keeps coming up outside of Washington. And and Anita, you have noted this before, that every time you get questions from like local press in the White House briefing room, it's about every immigration and it's about sanctuary time. cities and it's about money, about it sanctuary it's cities. Every single time. It's just like clockwork. Every time there is um, one of those Skype questions, it's sanctuary cities. And it's as if they didn't hear the other person just ask the same exact question. But it doesn't go away. It's it's dollars and cents for local government that is already strapped, you know? Jump in here, Katie. This is a issue that really unites Republicans. Is that one of the reasons that we think Donald Trump continues to come to it? Or is it because he truly believes in the importance of having a tougher immigration policy? Well, broadly speaking, this sort of message of a tougher immigration policy is central to who Donald Trump is as president. That was a a central animating theme of his campaign. And uh, that is a key promise that uh, the folks who who turned out for him uh, in in November uh, are expecting him to deliver on. And so, um, you know, whether it's on this issue, whether it's on the border wall with Mexico, we've maybe seen a, a little equivocation in that language. But, you know, certainly his support Supporters and political activists uh, in some of these key states where he had a lot of support certainly do expect him to be following through in a big way. So I talked to a conservative immigration expert yesterday. So he's very much in line with what Donald Trump has talked about. He wants to you know, go hard at sanctuary cities. And he called the word he used to describe Republicans in Congress was spineless. He said they would not take away the funding. And so this is super important because this is what the administration can control. These three important grants, not a huge amount of money, but super important. And so this is a way to get around Congress. Congress already gave the administration this this authority. Colin, how's it playing in North Carolina? Yeah, so North Carolina sanctuary cities were uh, an issue that the Republican-dominated legislature dealt with a couple years ago, put up a straight-up ban on any sort of city or county having a sanctuary city policy. But now there's concern that there weren't following that and that there wasn't enough teeth to that law. So there's a couple of bills floating around in the House and Senate this year that would take away some of the funding that those cities and counties get, very similar to what President Trump is considering at the national level. This would be things like uh, beer and wine, tax revenue, things that the state distributes out to uh, local governments. Uh, and those bills uh, seemed like they were going along pretty strongly. And uh, within the last month, they haven't moved at all. And we're coming up on a, a key deadline for legislation to pass. It almost seems like the fiscally conservative Republicans that run these finance committees aren't as interested in tackling this issue, this very divisive issue here in North Carolina, as they are other topics. So these bills have kind of stalled out and we haven't seen a whole lot of action on this front. Tell the listeners about the big uh, review of the voter rolls and how immigration played in that study. Yeah, so that was really interesting. Uh, Last week, the State Board of Elections here in North Carolina did this extremely comprehensive review in response to a lot of the voter fraud claims that were flying around after last November's election to see just how many ineligible voters actually voted. And there were about 500 that came up with, uh, most of which were convicted felons who were still serving an active sentence and evidently thought when they got out of jail they had the right to vote, but they actually don't get the right back until they're done with their probation. But there was a a small number, uh, just a couple dozen, of folks who are non-citizens who voted here. And so that sort of prompted a lot of rhetoric of, look, here's those illegal immigrants that President Trump was talking about having voted, but they're not actually illegal immigrants. That's factually wrong because they're all people who had green cards and were confused about whether that green card gave them the right to vote or not. Um, And of course, that doesn't give you the right to vote. So these folks were taken out. But there's really no good uh, immigration database that the states can use from what I heard from talking to the folks at our Board of Elections. So they really have a hard time uh, figuring out exactly what the status of, is of some of the folks who voted, but uh, they weren't able to find anyone who's 
doesn't have some sort of legal residency who voted here in North Carolina. It just seems to me that there were enough nuggets in this great story that came out of this interesting study in North Carolina, Anita, that provide some fuel to Donald Trump's rhetoric around immigration and fraudulent voting. And is this something that's registering at the White House? Oh, I definitely think so. I tweeted that story of yours, Colin, and I got some retweets from Republicans, conservatives, of course, because this is what they've been talking about. This is an issue. And they were happy to see a legitimate, real report that said so. Yeah, it was funny how this is being perceived differently among uh, different sides. The Republicans point to this statistic that over 60% of the ineligible voters are registered Democrats. The Democrats are pointing to this great little anecdote in there about this woman who, 89-year-old mother was on her deathbed. Her deathbed wish that was, was her daughter would go vote for Trump for her. So her daughter goes in and impersonates her dead mother and votes for Trump. Oh, God. That's a fantastic <laughs> anecdote. I mean, is she arrested, though? No, they decided not to bring charges against her. It was forwarded to the district attorney in that county. Mm. And the Uh-oh. idea was, well, she was suffering from grief and she has no prior record and she really didn't realize what she was doing was wrong. Wow. <laughs> so Patty was talking about how this issue is never going to end and it's not going to end because the Trump administration is not going to let it end. But there's also another reason it's not going to end. The congressman who is in charge of the subcommittee that deals with appropriations for justice, um, it's a man named John Culberson of Texas. He has said that he wants to give permission to the administration to take even more money from sanctuary cities in the future. And so you can see if the Republicans in Congress are going to pass that. All right, guys, time for the lightning round, our favorite part, or at least my favorite part. Each of you gets to identify one politician or an issue, Anita. Who or that is making moves relevant to the next election, whether that's 17, 18, or 2020? And first, Katie Glick. So I am actually going to go with Vice President Mike Pence because I am told from conservatives that the role that he is playing in the latest healthcare negotiations are helping more conservatives to get on board. Of course, if more conservatives get on board and they're able to actually pass something, or, you know, the converse, they're not able to get something done in the midterms. Either way, very significant dynamic looking ahead for 20. 2018, but I was just speaking with uh, Tim Phillips, who is the national president of Americans for Prosperity, same group, of course, as Donald Bryson. And he told me that the process uh, as it relates to new healthcare debates has been much more productive, much more results oriented. And he credited specifically the work that Vice President Pence's office has been doing. Anita, I'm pretty excited about mine because I ran it by one of our political reporters before I came in the studio and I stumped him. So I'm going to go with Bill Lee. He's a Republican running for governor in Tennessee. He um, is a successful businessman. Hey, I'm Bill Lee. And owns a family-owned construction company. He has never run for political office. He is going on kitchen table issues like jobs. Does this sound familiar? Donald Trump. My family's been in Tennessee since 1796. And people say he really, really has a good shot. There are people running on both Republicans and Democrats, but that he's a solid candidate. And there are pieces of him that do not sound familiar. Then... Everything changed, and I learned just how short our lives really are. In 2000, his wife died from a horse riding accident on their farm, which is terrible, and he has since really gotten involved in volunteering and philanthropy. We'll see you soon. Colin Campbell. 
I'm going with the guy who announced just Sunday that he is going to be the Democratic opponent for Mark Meadows, the head of the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, his name is Matt Coffey. He's from uh, the liberal enclave of Asheville and is involved in leading a bunch of progressive groups. He is also, uh, as best I can tell from his bio, the head of an organic urban farming group in Asheville. So it's going to make for a very interesting race. I think this is a, a very long shot bid to unseat Mark Meadows in what's a very conservative district, but it should make for a uh, fascinating race to watch, particularly given uh, Mark Meadows' role on the national stage. Patty? I'm going to go down to the Florida state legislature level where Senator Frank Artiles is now former Senator Frank Artiles after having resigned in scandal last week for using a racist slur at another lawmaker. To Senator Audrey Gibson, I apologize. I'm so sorry for the words and the tone I used with you, regretfully, Monday night. And this means we now have an election in South Florida in 2017 that we didn't expect to have. So there will be a special election. We expect the governor to call it soon uh, for his seat. This is a Democratic-leaning seat that had been uh, won by a Republican in November, a seat that Clinton won by 17 percentage points, but that Republicans are eager to keep in their hands. So we're going to get the first test in South Florida post-Trump. Should be interesting. I'm going with Heath Mello, the Democratic candidate for mayor in Omaha. What I hope to bring to Omaha as the next mayor is a leader who is focused on building consensus with all areas of the city and trying to really build a city that is ensuring that prosperity is inclusive. And the reason I'm picking him is because Bernie Sanders campaigned for him, citing a whole bunch of progressive positions that Mello holds. But many, many, many Democrats have criticized Sanders for getting behind a candidate who opposes abortion rights. And this is exactly the kind of controversy that shows a party really deeply split on pragmatism versus ideology. He also has a really cool name. Mello. Mello. All right, that's it for us. Thank you so much, Colin Campbell. Talk to you later. Bye, Patty Mazay. My pleasure. Bye. Anita Kumar. I will see you next week when we know if the government has shut down. And Katie Glick. Thank you so much, as always. Thank you to our executive producer, Davin Coburn, and thank you to our listeners. We really love doing this show, so please... Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use and leave us a review. And also, send us some questions and some comments to btb at mcclatchy.com. That's btb as in beyond the bubble. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground state. We might even ask you to call into our show. Talk to you next week. Katie, how was your secret trip to Puerto Rico? It was great. Thank you to Kristen, actually, because thanks to this uh, secret trip to Puerto Rico that she okayed, I am actually now engaged. Woo-hoo! Very exciting. That was so cute, guys. <laughs> I'm Just allowed to share that on a podcast. Sure, why not? It's our podcast. I want to thank Katie for keeping her hands at her side because she's now sporting a rock that would blind you in Miami, Katie. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, wow. Congratulations, <laughs> Katie. I want to see everyone. Yeah. Who are you having babies? Just kidding. Stop. Oh, my God. You said my mom. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sorry.